Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the first book from Faith Matters Publishing is now available. It's called All Things New and was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. When I finished the book, I just thought this has so much potential to actually change lives. They go through and trace the roots of our religious vocabulary and show how so many of these words have become totally unmoored from their original foundation and how a lot of those traditions have been carried forward for hundreds and even thousands of years and are in a lot of ways still damaging us today. And then they dive into how we can reformulate our language in healthy and inspiring ways. This book is so healing. It's hopeful. It's a totally paradigm shifting book that you will not be able to put down. You can pick up a copy for yourself or for friends and family. It's available at Desert Book on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful for Terrell and Fiona and all of the amazing work that they've done here. All right, that's all for the book for now, but we have a lot more to come. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. In this episode, Terrell Given speaks with Dr. Laura Bridgewater, a molecular biologist at Brigham Young University. In their conversation, they explore the cutting edge of genetic science and how it can both challenge and transform our beliefs. One of the most interesting parts of their conversation centered on how an understanding of evolutionary biology might challenge our beliefs around agency. We'll let Laura explain in the episode, but rather than being threatened by the scientific reality, she sees it as an invitation to judge others less harshly. Laura and Terrell also discuss CRISPR, the Nobel Prize-winning gene editing technology, and talk about the ethical issues that arise from it. For instance, CRISPR could insulate us against hereditary diseases, but could also empower us to genetically engineer our children. We loved hearing all of Dr. Bridgewater's perspectives and want to give her a special thanks for coming on to talk with Terrell. We really hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to another episode of uh, Conversations with Terrell Given, sponsored by Faith Matters. And my guest today is Laura Bridgewater, who is currently, she occupies the position of Associate Academic Vice President for Advancement. Did for I? Faculty Development. For Faculty Development. Yes. Um, and I have to say, I find you much more interesting than your job title. So, <laughs> but um, that's that's what it is. So we're not going to talk a lot about this, the specifics of, of your job title, but but we would like you to say a few things about what you do uh, in the administration at Brigham Young University. And then we'll talk a little bit about how you came to where you are professionally. Okay, sure. So um, my assignment now as a AAVP is much easier to say. Right. <laughs> um, I've been doing it for about two and a half years. And the bulk of my effort has to do with rank and status reviews across campus. Um, the process where faculty members are reviewed for continuing faculty status. It's BYU's version of tenure. So you're a judge in Israel, but in this, this the secular part of the kingdom, right? <laughs> Actually, I don't really make the judgments. I make sure that the people who are supposed to make the judgments get it all done in the right, right order, in the right way. Right. Okay. And your background is uh, not in administration. You come from uh, microbiology yeah. and... Yes, and molecular biology. Molecular biology. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, so, so just give us a quick overview of your of your professional training, your career path, and uh, your first experiences at Brigham Young, which is where you started, sure. right, after your it postdoc. Is. Yep. Yeah, I, well, let me back up to when I was an undergraduate. I went to BYU as an undergrad, too, um, and about a year in, knew I had to hurry and pick a major because I was 
pretty much done with my GE and <laughs> didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got to hear, um, I was in an honors colloquium course where a guest speaker came in, uh, Ron Levitt, a microbiology professor, came in and spoke about gene therapy, which was not a thing yet. Right, you know, then right. it was just, we can do this. He talked about cutting and pasting DNA. And um, I just found it so fascinating. So and this I, would have been in the 90s? 80s. The 80s, okay. 80s, yep. So I was there, yeah, in the, the last half of the 80s. I was at BYU and I heard that talk and had been asking myself, what could I study? What, what kind of job could I do that wouldn't bore me? I was so afraid of being bored <laughs> for the rest of my life. Yeah, who said, that said <laughs> the cure for ignorance is curiosity, but there is no cure for curiosity, which <laughs> That's is good. Yeah. It is. I asked him after that presentation, what should I major in to do this someday? And he said, well, the closest thing at BYU right now is microbiology. And I changed my major that day, having no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. So I learned <clears throat> later that you would need some graduate schooling if you're going to do that. Um, and actually, a little story you might be interested in. I applied. I didn't know that in, in molecular biology, you can go right into a PhD program. I thought I had to get a master's degree first. Right. I applied to master's programs in Washington, D.C. I um, was married a year before I graduated, and we had already decided we were moving to Washington, D.C. My husband had been working there. Tim's his name. Tim had been working out there the year before we got married, and we sort of made a deal that he would come back to Utah so I could finish at BYU, and then we would go to Washington, D.C. So I applied to Georgetown and GW, and, you know, that's those were my options. Right. Um, to the master's program, but I got a phone call from George Washington University saying, we want to offer you our presidential fellowship, but it's only for PhD students. Why didn't you apply to the PhD program? <laughs> and the real reason was my plan, well, first, I didn't know I could, but I also had planned to get a master's degree and then have kids and then someday go back for PhD. Right. And I put that in my application, the right. master's and then PhD part. I didn't mention the kids part. Um, but there came this offer. So you made a quick change. And we, we actually fasted and prayed about it because the kids question, you know, right. how are we going to do this? But it was, it seemed like it just dropped right out of heaven. How do you say no to a, you know, the, the stipend was twice what anybody else at the university got. It was a real honor. Right. Right. So I did end up changing the PhD program. We decided that we would try both. We would try to have kids and do a PhD and. See if it worked. So uh, I, I interviewed uh, Claudia Bushman very recently. Okay. And uh, she has very inspiring but a very painful uh, saga, right, of mm. her in terms of her professional um, life and challenges uh, at a period where both in and outside of the church, women weren't terribly welcome in academia, certainly not on an equal footing. Um, you're a generation or two later, a uh, couple <laughs> later um any any resistance in that regard any uh were you were you made to feel conflicted about that decision to pursue both paths at the same time motherhood and profession um i was conflicted i don't know if i was made to feel it um <laughs> i actually had kind of a life-changing experience when i interviewed to work at BYU. So this was after, you know, I, I went to graduate school. I did end up having four kids during graduate school, graduated in five years, um, which is 
standard in my arena. Right. And then a postdoc. And then did a postdoc and then came to BYU. So when I interviewed, when you when you interviewed a teacher at BYU, you always go to Salt Lake City and get interviewed by a general authority. Right. Which is really intimidating. <laughs> at least it was for me. But when I did that, it, it was a life-changing experience. And I'll tell you why. Um, because all through this time, I had had a bit of a... Um, it kind of felt like a little cloud following me around, like I might be doing something wrong. You know, on the one hand, I've been given this just doors opening. Okay. The, the fellowship at George Washington, um, being invited to be in their PhD program. When I applied for postdocs, it turns out that a member of my graduate committee knew my postdoctoral, the person who hired me really well and gave me just a, a, shining recommendation that got me into a fabulous lab. Um, I applied for fellowships, lots of different funding fellowships. I think I sent 13 to 15 applications as a postdoc. It's important to be able to get funding in my arena. If the research we do is really expensive. Right. So I applied for these and got one of them, not the others, but the one I got was the most prestigious one. <laughs> And so it, it opened more doors. It opened doors and it made yeah. it. And here I'm a mother of four young children. Okay. They, my oldest was three when the twins were born. So I had four children very close. Um, I went home at the end of the day, you know, when it was five o'clock, I was gone and I was working with people who were in the lab, you know, till nine or 10 every night. But because I had that fellowship, it gave me a legitimacy. You know, it helped right, right. with that. It was really powerful. So, you know, I had these things that just kept coming to me feeling like this is the right path. The doors kept opening. And yet there's this other side. And I don't think I'm alone in this. You know, the other side of me saying, but what if the righteous thing to do would be to walk away from this? You know, what if what if this is selfish and I ought to be, you know, these are temptations <laughs> and I should be turning my back on that in order to stay home with my kids. And um, I... You know, I kept going, obviously, and had gone through graduate school, the postdoc, but always with that little bit of a sense, like, I might be just about to get struck by lightning. I, You know, I think I'm okay, but I'm not positive. So when did you work that through? I, I had this interview with the general authority in Salt Lake, and I, I won't say who it is because I haven't asked him if I could share the story. But we had the interview, and it was much like a Temple Recommend interview, you know, standard set of right. questions. And at the end, he said, do you have questions for me? I said, yes, I do. If um, women are supposed to be home, if mothers are supposed to be home with their kids, why is BYU even interviewing me for this position? And he um, said, you're right. <laughs> he said, I, I wish I had it all on tape. He talked about um, the, the number of mothers in Utah who are in the workforce. And at the time it was about 50%. Now it's more, but it was, it was a little over 50% at so the time. Tracks pretty close to the national average. Very doesn't? close. Yes. And he talked about how with the less education they have, the more they end up having to work for lower pay. Um, whereas with education, you know, you can, you can earn more have more flexibility. He talked about the example, how our, our female students at BYU need examples to show them. They know they can be teachers and nurses, but they don't really know all the other doors and options that are available to them. He talked about how important it is and it would be for me to keep my family as my first priority. He said, I can't tell you how to do it. And by no means am I saying that all mothers should do this. 
And it's going to be really critical to keep your family first priority, but that's the same for a father. Every father should be making sure the family, that his family is first priority. And I came out of there and that little cloud was gone. (laughs) It was gone. I just felt for the first time. Well, the general authority would probably be happy to be named uh, since he had (laughs) such a positive influence. (laughs) But what a great uh, perspective for him to share with you. It was, it was so life changing for me and it helped me see how important it is. I think for all women to just have a sense that I'm okay. You know, this is, I'm, this is an okay path. These are good yeah. choices. You, um, have to keep examining your choices. You know, that's another thing I came away with is knowing that you can't just pick a path and then stay on it forever without ever saying, am I still okay? I think you always have to be asking, am I still okay? Am I still managing my family right? Am I handling, you know, does it need to change this month or this semester? Because my kids are different ages. What should happen? Right. Um, But ever since that, I have not had that worry that I might be doing something evil. Right. (laughs) So you took the position. uh, You got a lab initially or with, you got, you, you, and uh, you became a, a researcher, successful mm-hmm. academic. When you made the, the transition to the uh, administrative line, um, yes. was that was that a calling? Did you feel that, that was a calling or was that a <laughs> career lateral move? Or It felt a little bit like that? both. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> a little of each. Um, um, the, as a career move, it's been interesting because it really is a very different career. I feel like I started a different career path and I've learned so many things I never would have learned through teaching research citizenship, you know, the the things that a typical faculty member does. So I've enjoyed being stretched in new ways. It certainly has been a stretch. I've learned a lot. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about your, your initial uh, experiences at BYU as a, as a new professor. Sure. Um, (laughs) I was hired at BYU just about a year or so, year or two before the human genome was published, you know, for the first time it came out in nature and science Excuse me, I need to get some water. <clears throat> and weren't, weren't there two initiatives going on at the same time? One yes. with Francis Collins and the other was uh, uh, yes. an independent with organization. NIH. Oh, with oh. Um, maybe Francis Collins was leading the NIH. Yeah, I thought, I thought that You're was right. the case. You're right, and Bettner. That's right, Bettner was Bettner the other one. The other one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, yes, and those were published. And I, so this is an exciting time for you so to be exciting. coming into the profession. Oh, yes. And one of the first things that came to my mind was now we can sequence Native American DNA and <laughs> prove the whole world that the Book of Mormon's true. Right. And I mentioned this to a colleague who said, ah, oh, they've already done that. And Didn't it's not out. Israelite, you know, it's not Israelite DNA. And that, that was, that hit me just like a ton of bricks. I was not prepared for that. So was that a significant stumbling block in your spiritual life? It was a temporary, very short-lived, but very intense. So why short-lived? So what happened? Well, I mean, (laughs) if you think about this, I had this frame of mind. Um, If the Book of Mormon's true, Native Americans have Israelite DNA. Okay, very clear. If then logic, I've got it all worked out. Native Americans don't all have Israelite DNA. Does that mean the Book of Mormon's not true? And that... I mean, I just remember that sinking feeling. Oh no, my whole life is built on this. My job, my family, my marriage, you know, and, and the covenants, everything. 
And do I have to turn my back on that to have integrity? And then I just took a deep breath and said, okay, well, wait a minute. What do I know? Um, and started thinking, I, I believe the Book of Mormon's real. You know, I, it's what it claims to be. I've read it so many times. I felt this. Okay. I still believe that. What else? Um, covenants. I believe the covenants I've made are real. You know, they're not just words I spoke. They actually made covenants with God. And I can't turn my back on those. That's, it's not something you just walk away from. You know, those are real. Okay. Then what? And what I ended up deciding was there's something I'm missing. You know, there, there must be something I don't understand. I need to just put this on the shelf because there are things here that I, I know are true. And so this piece that isn't fitting, I'm going to have to just, you know, not think about it. I got to put it on the shelf for a little while. And now, 20 years later, knowing much more about population genetics than right. I did at the time, right. it completely makes sense why the, all Native Americans don't have Israelite DNA. Reading the Book of Mormon more carefully, seeing the mentions of other people who right. were there that I hadn't caught before. Um, and that's been such a powerful experience for me um, going forward because I see other things that I still don't get. But now when I run into something that I don't understand how it fits, I see the value of putting it on the shelf right. um, and right. that I'm, you know, I'll probably know later at some point it's all going to make sense. Right. You know, right. I tell my students that in, I teach molecular biology or taught, I should say <laughs> it's been two, two and a half years. I teach molecular biology and um, evolution is fundamental, right? Evolution underlies every aspect of molecular biology and really all of biology. There's no, no aspect of biology that isn't founded on evolution. And um, I tell my students, we talk about, you know, these things quite a bit. And we just have, what I tell them is we've got to have some humility. You know, there are some pieces where science still doesn't have every answer and they haven't all been revealed either. Yeah. And you got to watch out on either side if someone tells you they know everything. I've, I, yeah, I've taken to saying lately that our problem more often is overknowledge than underknowledge, <laughs> overbelief rather than underbelief. Yeah. We, we, Yes. think we're required to believe more than we need to. The, well, and that's what okay. that's what I'm saying to the students. Watch out for anyone who tells you this is how it is. Yeah. There are things that we don't know, and so they're probably claiming more than they ought to. Our church has a very mixed history when it comes to the relationship between science and yeah. belief, right? Um, I know reviewing the first decades especially, I was I was really pleased and proud to realize how magnanimous and open and liberal Joseph Smith's mind and that of his contemporaries was that, that right all truth could be circumscribed into this one whole. There's a way to reconcile it all. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there was this sense that um, there aren't rigid demarcations between what we can learn from religion and what we can learn from, from secular arm. Uh, then evolution comes on its scene, right, 1859 and, and years following. And if you look at the record, most of the leadership are fairly cautious, right? They're not making any official pronouncements one way or the other, so they don't box themselves in the way, for example, the evangelicals and others do. Then you get to the early 1900s, right, and you have this crisis over evolution where there are the firings at BYU, and all the way through the 60s, right, and 70s, it's being taught that evolution is one of the 
the great heresies. Um, do you think we're through um, those kind of difficult, anti-intellectual, suspicious um, kinds of currents that have plagued us every now and then? Are we at a good I, place, I guess it do you depends think, in the church? Who we is. I think, yeah. I, I think at BYU we are. Um, I don't know about the whole rest of the, the church and the world. <laughs> well, well, talk to me about how in your own profession, your own academic specialties, which is, um, I know you worked with gut biomes. And, yes. And, and, um, has your... Has your scholarship just been kind of in a in a category by itself? Has it intersected with your faith? Has it challenged or strengthened your 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 belief as a Latter Day Saint? But one way I look at science in general and my work is that the reason we do science is to figure out how God did it, <laughs> and that's just my way of thinking about it. But. Yeah. Um, try to understand, you know, what has he done? The more we discover, the more amazed I am. Um, so I have done work, you mentioned, with the gut microbiota recently and um, have been, it, well, it's really remarkable what biological beings we are. You know, we, we, we're spirit and body. Our bodies are really not so different from mice and brewer's yeast and jellyfish, <laughs> you know, our, our biochemistry is the same. Pretty significant overlap of DNA, yeah. right? Yes. And we can study these other organisms and learn things that are highly relevant to human biology and how, how our bodies work. Um, one of the things I've found fascinating as I've studied the gut microbiota is how it just, maybe not everyone knows what that is. The gut microbiota is the bacteria, the population of microbes um, not only bacteria, but all microbes that live in our gut. So, and we have, you know, we have skin microbiota, you know, the nasal. We have these different colonies of bacteria that are part of us. Um, by some accounts, we have 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells that make up our bodies. So, you know, we're really a lot of bacteria and the bacteria in our gut play some pretty important roles. They help with digestion. They produce vitamins. Um, they also do things like produce um, neural signaling molecules, neurotransmitters, the same kind of things that we produce, you know, that our own neurons produce. Um, there's a fascinating study, one of the earlier ones that showed a connection between the gut microbiota and behavior, you know, mental health essentially was done by a group that they use two different um, kinds of mice. So there are common types of lab mice that are used by labs all over the world. And one type has a personality that's more timid, and this other type is more bold and will go explore a new environment. So they took these two groups of mice and did a test called, um, they called it the step-down test. So the mice are in a, a, an arena, you know, it's maybe a three by three foot box. And in the middle of this arena is a platform, a circular, you know, cylinder four inches high or something, four or five inches, easy for a mouse to get off, but high enough that they wouldn't just walk off it easily. Right. And your time, how long it takes till the mouse steps down. So it's the step down test. Um, the bold mice get right off and go explore the arena. The timid mice stay on it much longer and you time and you can, you know, get an average, do your statistical analysis. They then took the gut microbiota from these two strains of mice and swapped them. And these behaviors swapped. The bold mice became more timid and the timid mice became more bold. 
The only difference was having different kinds of bacteria in their gut. That's a terrifying conclusion. So, <laughs> so, so isn't it amazing? So, where do we find the origins or the the heart of identity, of character, of, uh, of who we are as spirit beings and intelligences? We find it in our uh-huh. gut. <laughs> I think we find it in our spirit. You know, our gut is just more biology. But you're saying that that affects, right, behavior, characteristics, it personality. It does. It does. And then I guess that raises the, the obvious question, how much of our behavior is biology? Right, right. And those are hard questions. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that, that one of the lessons you derive from that experiment would would seem to be the kind of findings that that, uh, that the Nobel um, Prize winner Kahneman and other psychologists and people like Jonathan Haidt and tons of other people are discovering the extent to which our agency is I don't know if I want to say compromised but it's it's mitigated um, by all kinds of factors of which we tend to be oblivious whether they're environmental or whether they're genetic or biological um, it seems to me like like there may be important theological stakes here that, that these yeah. seem to really touch on questions of, well, what is agency? How much agency do we have? But it sounds to me like you're not learning anything that you have found disturbing or threatening. Just I don't find it disturbing. Shifting. The way it affects me is in the way I look at other people. Um, it makes me less judgmental because... Um, you know, I don't know what's going on with somebody else's gut microbiota <laughs> of all the things to have to think about. And that's just one right, piece, right? right? Think about environmental experiences, you know, things people have gone through as a child. And now we've got gut microbiota to think about on top yeah. of that, all the different impacts on, you know, their life experience that might be affecting how they react to me or how they react right. to the world right. or interact with the world. It just makes me a lot more likely to kind of let people be and accept them yeah. as they are. Well, let me let me make a, a claim and see if if you would agree or, or push back. One of the most distinctive features of Latter-day Saint theology is our absolute rejection of original sin, right? Uh, so we don't believe that we have inherited guilt, and we would most Latter-day Saints would tend to take that also to mean that we don't inherit a fallen nature, a depraved nature. The problem is, as one wag said, um, original sin is the only empirically verifiable theological truth, right? If you look around, we seem to be fallen beings in so many ways. It seems to me that Darwin is one of the greatest friends that the church has because Darwin gives us an explanation for what other traditions have imposed on this category of original sin, right? In other words, we do inherit all kinds of tendencies and limitations Mm -hmm. and predispositions that that we need to sometimes learn to domesticate or control or accommodate. Um, Do you think that's an accurate way of seeing how Maybe biological understanding can be an asset rather than an impediment to our faith. Yeah, I do. I do. The scriptures talk about the natural man being an enemy to God. And I see the, the evolved man as, you know, that's what the natural man is. Those right. tendencies right. to survival. Um, they, we have to fight against them in some cases or, 
maybe not fight against so much. Sometimes we work with them, but we do have to deal with them as right. we try to reach the next level right. and really control ourselves. Right. I wanted to ask you a related question. Uh, I'm interested in, in recent developments in CRISPR technology. Yes. Uh, and I read the recent book by the Nobel Prize winner. What was her name? Yes, then? Jennifer Dunya. Dunya. Um, Dunya. Called Crack and Creation. Yes. Um, many of our listeners might not know what CRISPR technology is or what its um, incredibly significant implications might be for ethics and, and religion. So could you just kind of give us a primer on what CRISPR is and what developments have occurred recently in that field? Sure. CRISPR, it's a very powerful tool that is accessible to a lot of labs, to essentially any biological lab for editing DNA. Now, editing DNA, I, I told you back in my undergraduate years, I learned about cutting and pasting DNA with restriction enzymes is what, when I learned about it, <laughs> Professor Levitt called the magic scissors. These little proteins that will find a certain sequence of DNA and cut it. But um, there are only a certain number of these restriction enzymes. And if you don't have its recognition site, the DNA doesn't have the right spot for it to cut, it won't get cut. So that's been a limitation of, you know, cutting, changing DNA for decades. And why would you want to decades. do that? Um, anytime you want to change DNA, if you're if you're cutting, splicing DNA, um, oh, just as an example, let me think if I can like come bioengineering up with one. animals um, would be one thing. Think about um, producing insulin. Okay, in um, it, it used to be for someone who's diabetic to get insulin. That insulin had to be harvested from pigs. You know, the, the made insulin. Now, right. um, with using DNA technology, you can take the human insulin gene and put it into bacteria and have the bacteria make insulin. But you've got to tinker with that gene a little bit so that the bacteria can recognize it and make the right, you know, and do it right. Right. So we have to understand quite a bit and be able to change that DNA enough that it will work. But it's, you know, they're, they're minor changes, but it, <laughs> there were some pretty huge advances in molecular biology to get to that point. But now with CRISPR, um, it's a method that lets us change any DNA any sequence. It actually comes from um, bacteria. Uh, it's sometimes called a bacterial immune system, where bacteria are set up to recognize foreign DNA viruses. There are viruses called bacteriophage that will attack bacteria. So bacteria have their defense system against it. And they just collect bits of this invading DNA and save it. And then they, if the virus invades again, when I say save it, now think about a bacterial cell. It doesn't just sit there as one cell. You know, the way we sit there as one person my whole life, a bacterial cell is one cell. And 20 minutes later, it's two cells and then four, then right. eight, then 16. So if a bacterial cell gets infected and then takes up and saves some of this invader's DNA in its own defense system, then the two, four, eight, 16 cells all have that. Okay. And if any of those cells get invaded in the future, they're preset with a system that just lets them cut up the invading DNA. So Jennifer Doudna and other colleagues, you know, a lot of people have worked on this, developed this system, took it, modified it. They were able to lift it out of the bacterial system and adapt it so that we can target, um, not just invading DNA, but any DNA that we want to cut. So we've identified the whole human genome, mm -hmm. and now we can go in with a precision instrument yes. and cut and snip 
And cut it. And replace. And replace something that's rather, else. That's or, rather exciting <laughs> but frightening prospect, right? It is. It is. There are, uh, the, the ethical implications are huge. There really are a lot of questions that have to be addressed before it goes too far. <laughs> you know, yeah. there are things, it's being used, like I said, it's being used now in labs all over the world. The ethical implications come with changing human, you know, human cells and in particular, germline cells. You know, that that's where um, right now the scientists around the world have basically just agreed, we don't do that. We're not going there yet because we don't know the implications. Right. We as a community have to come together and figure out how to move forward in a safe, ethical way. But <laughs> a scientist in China that made the news a couple of years ago used CRISPR and um, edited two embryos human embryos, um, implanted them into a mother. The twins were born with edited DNA. So he was vilified, um, but he did it. But he did it. Yeah, he did it. And others can. So have, uh, are we at a point where any hereditary diseases can be successfully treated with CRISPR technology? We, um, we're at a point where that kind of research can be pursued. We're not at a point of doing it yet because of the, you know, these ethical questions. What, what are the implications of editing something in a way that that'll be passed on to the person's offspring? Right. And that's what we're talking about with, well, let, let me take that back. That's what we're talking about if we're trying to completely heal every cell in a person. Okay. If we're talking about a person who has maybe a lung disease, we are at the point where we could use CRISPR technologies to find a way to heal those cells. No ethical issues really there. I mean, right. they're <laughs> minimal. Right. Um, this, this is such an interesting area. I remember getting a question about something like this back in graduate school on a test. And of course, CRISPR didn't exist then, right. or at least it wasn't known. Um, but thinking through this, how the question had to do with are, is there a danger of, well, I guess the question was just what are the ethical issues? But the concerns people have is, is there a danger of making changes that will make us less human? You know, is humanity at risk? Could we accidentally change the gene that makes us different from the animals? And I have never worried about that because it's not our genes that make us different. Our genes are so similar, <laughs> like I said, not just to apes, but to brewer's yeast. Um, what's different is our spirits. Right. You know, that's the difference. Our spirits are children of God. All things have spirit. I mean, a, a, a pet, a dog at home has a spirit, but that spirit is not a child of God. And our spirits are. And that's, that's really reassuring to me as we go into these new areas. And it's not to minimize the ethical concerns. I mean, we really do have to go with great care on how we apply CRISPR. Right. But, I don't see a risk of us being able to do anything at the biological, biochemical level that makes humans not human. Well, you've kind of segued back to the topic of faith and, and science. <laughs> and so as we, as we wrap up, I'm wondering if I could ask you to make any concluding comments about, um, to return to what you said at the very beginning about you, you see science, was it science in general, you said, as a way to try to understand how God does what God does. So, so could you sum up what you've learned in that regard and how it has uh, enhanced or enriched 
your appreciation for a creator God? Sure. The, I just find that a, a very um, enriching way to look at science, you know, as, as being in biological science in particular, as being an effort to understand how God did it. What is this thing he's created? You know, all these details, these molecular details that make a cell work are so, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, learning about human development, for example, how we go from one cell to a whole body with, you know, eyes and hair and a skeleton, all these different cell types. Why didn't we just go from one cell to a ball of cells? That's <laughs> all the same. But no, there's this amazing developmental process. Um, it's miraculous, you know, and the fact that we can understand a little bit of it in no way makes it less miraculous. And I think that's where a lot of people have a conflict. They say, well, I can understand it, then it's not God doing it, right, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. In, in, in this regard, one of my, my favorite remarks that Brigham Young once made, because um, it kind of takes you aback for a moment. Brigham Young is talking about that prophesied moment when the earth is transformed into a, um, what a, a sea of glass, a, a, a Urimin thumb. And he says, how will that be accomplished? And then he answers his own question. He said, by the angels who are best instructed in chemistry. <laughs> and it's, it's a I delightful it. and part of, you know, part of the laughter that it elicits is kind of the incongruous, right? The incongruity of, of angels and chemistry, of uh, eschatology and chemical processes. <laughs> but in some ways, that's the beauty and glory of, of Mormonism, isn't it? That, it is. that we do collapse these things into one and say, no, God is God because he's, he's the master scientist, the master biologist, the master chemist yeah. who understands all of these processes. And, and we will have to acquire whatever status we acquire through the same process of knowledge acquisition yeah. and, and learning. Yes. I, I love that our church teaches that all of it will make sense. It all is going to fit together. You know, yeah. there is not going to be a permanent division between religion and science or between, you know, any, any fields. When we understand everything, it's all going to just merge perfectly. I can't yeah. wait for yeah. the day that I see, oh, that's how it all fits together. In the meantime, I love trying to figure it out. You know, there are things about evolution in particular. I think about that a lot. How, you know, how did this happen? Yeah. And I love trying to come up with ideas. And, you know, I may be completely wrong. Um, and they're not ideas that I would share with anybody. They're just my own ideas. And I think it's great fun to think about it. And I just, I can't wait someday to say, oh, I was right. Or, boy, I was way off. Someday yeah. we're going to yeah. know. And we don't have to stress about the fact that we don't know all of it right now. Right, right. Well, Laura, thank you for being with us today, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm for science and for the gospel. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation between Laura Bridgewater and Terrell Givens. And again, huge thanks to Dr. Bridgewater for coming on. And to everybody who's left a positive review of our podcast or content on any platform, we really do appreciate it. We do read each review and comment and are grateful for the encouragement and for helping get the word out about Faith Matters. And of course, as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.